This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast, show 370. There are so many tax loopholes, especially designed for real estate investors. So it's just a matter of making sure you're taking advantage of them. I mean, of course, with the recent tax reform, that's just been even better for real estate investors of all types. So yeah, definitely. I mean, it's just a low-hanging fruit for all investors to make sure you capitalize on those tax savings. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. What is going on, everyone? This is Brandon Turner, host of the Bigger Pockets podcast, here with my co host, Mr. David Green. David, the tax man Green. What's up, buddy? Yeah, I'm anything but the tax man, as people will realize when they listen to today's show. But I'm becoming <laughs> a tax man, and that's all that's important. Every day I'm getting better. There you go. That's awesome. Well, today's show is about taxes, but not in the way you might you might think. We don't just sit there and drill the tax code into you guys. It's actually full of stories, full of tips, ideas. We talk a lot about opportunity zones, 1031 exchanges, cost segregation. Those are all big words, but we break them down. And knowing the, the fundamentals of kind of how they work could change your entire life. In fact, I tell the story in the podcast of how one of those saved me $80,000 last year, actually working with Amanda and Matt, our guest today. So Amanda Hahn, Matt McFarland, those are our guests today on the show. But before we get to the show, let's get to today's quick tip. tip. All right. So you're about to hear, you're about to hear how important it is to have a great like CPA in your team, somebody who understands this stuff, but that goes for everything really. Like real estate investing is a team sport. That's why David talks a lot about the, what the core four. four. So here's the deal. Bigger Pockets has an entire directory of real estate professionals that can help you do deals, agents, lenders, construction companies, even wholesalers if you're looking for deals. So you can find them by going over to biggerpockets.com. Go to the navigation bar on the top. There's a word that says network. Hover over that and then go to companies and you can search by area and you can vet companies by looking over their forum posts and deals that they've done, references. So jump in, reach out, build those relationships. Gotta build your team. There you yeah, go. That's, that's a quick tip. I use Huge. that directory. I'm on that directory. That is one of the best kept secrets of bigger pockets. Honestly, mm. you should be. People reach out to me all the time and say, hey, do you know someone that can do this or that? And they would have found it if they had used that directory. Do you remember that old skillet song, best kept secret of our generation? Yo, the best kept secret. No. Okay. Anyway, moving on. Hey, one last thing before we jump into today's show. You guys remember Josh Dorkin? Of course you do. He was the host of the Bigger Pockets podcast here for like the first five or six years. And then he stepped away when his daughter went through some uh, medical struggles a couple years ago. You probably heard the story. He's been back on a couple times to talk about it. But here's the cool thing. Josh has a brand new show. It's called Undeniably Curious. It is awesome. It's him interviewing people, uh, both celebrities, there's athletes, there's business people, there's entrepreneurs uh, about uh, kind of like how to get a better life how to do better things in life, how do we get better at life. It's a really, really cool show. And guess who's the guest this week? That's right, this guy, me. So I'm on Josh's show this week. So let's do Josh a huge favor for thinking and for starting bigger pockets, first of all. Uh, and everybody listening to this, after the show, go over and listen to the Undeniably Curious podcast with Josh Dorkin. You can also just type into your search bar, like in your podcast app, Joshua Dorkin, and you'll probably find it. But it's called Undeniably Curious, and I am on the show this week, Brandon Turner. So go check it out. You'll hear a little bit about my, uh, a little bit about my story, but more uh, non-real estate stuff. We talk about a lot of other fun stuff, so... 
Again, go check it out. Undeniably curious. Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages. Until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com slash BP. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Passive income without the property headache? It's possible. There's a way to invest passively in real estate and get monthly income without any tenants, maintenance, or property management. The wealthy have been doing this for years, and if you're an accredited or high net worth investor, you too can collect cash flow without the headaches that come from owning rentals. How? By investing in a private real estate fund with PPR Capital Management. PPR's co-founder, Dave Van Horn, wrote the book on real estate note investing for BP. But he's not just investing in notes. Dave and his team also have an extensive background in commercial real estate. And with PPR Capital Management, they're strategically investing in both notes and commercial real estate nationwide. With over half a billion dollars in assets under management, PPR has provided individuals with a steady source of truly passive income since 2007 without ever missing a payment. Check them out at investwithppr.com. Again, if you're looking to get monthly passive income from an experienced team with a strong track record, go to investwithppr.com today. And with that, David, what do you think we get deep into the world of taxes and urban hip hop? Sound good? Yeah, that's exactly what I was hoping (laughs) to do today. Let's do it. (laughs) You'll understand why I said that later. Let's get to the interview with Amanda Hahn and Matt McFarland. All right, Amanda and Matt, welcome to the Bigger Pockets podcast. Amanda, good to have you back. And Matt, you've not been here before, have you, Matt? I don't think so. This is my first time. Thank you wow. for having me. Wow. All right. Well, we have some initiation that every new pot. I'm kidding. We don't. But uh, I do want to know a little bit about your story. Again, we've we've heard from Amanda, and Amanda, I want to go through your story real quickly. But then I want to hear from Matt real quick on what kind of his story is. How did he get into this whole uh, tax slash real estate game? So why don't we start with let's start with Matt today. Okay. So uh, yeah, I've been a CPA for over 20 years. I started one of the big four accounting firms and uh, I was there a couple of years and my big aha moment was working on, you know, wealthy individuals making a lot of money. And, but my aha moment was working on some 60 year old guys tax return. And all he had was he was retired. He had rental properties galore. And you're like, okay, well, let me see if we take his, his profit and loss statement on return, add back to depreciation. I mean, this guy was making like $200,000 in cash flow. Now, you know, I was 24 and I was like, what in the hell? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> this is awesome, you know? So that was kind of my aha moment and then started tailoring what I wanted to work on to be, you know, real estate and small businesses and things like that. And then 
uh, left Deloitte, went to a smaller firm for a few years. Then Amanda and I decided to kind of start our own practice, I guess, 12 years ago now. So, Very cool. And Amanda, where does your story go? go similar? Yeah, my brief story. So I come from a family. I'm a third generation of real estate investors from my family. But no, you know, my parents didn't really tell me to get into real estate. And uh, it was, you know, Matt and I through work, uh, through our jobs that we realized that real estate was such a great strategy for taxes and for wealth building. So we're, we've been fortunate to marry our two passions, essentially, you know, our passion for real estate investing and our passion for tax strategies and to be able to do both of those at the same time uh, and getting paid for it. So it's always a good thing to, you know, do what you love doing. Yeah, that's cool. Well, what about your eyes as personal? Like what, what, what do you do in real estate personally? Like, are you guys out there like swinging the hammer every weekend out in the suburbs or what do you, what do you guys do? What's kind of your, your choice? Uh, so, I mean, for, for us, most of our investments are passive, okay. uh, passive, um, you know, more so turnkey rentals that we have really good uh, family members and friends that are managing for us. Um, cool. Although we, for our clients, we have clients that do all sorts of real estate from flipping to wholesale to burst strategy or just, you know, traditional long-term hold investors. Yeah. Very cool. So today's show, obviously, you know, we could go through hours of your story and how you got into one deal to the next, but most people here are probably listening because they want to know how they can save money and how they can make more money and keep more money. And so that's the goal today. Of course, you guys have that amazing, well, what the first amazing book, uh, tax strategies for the savvy real estate investor. And you have a new book coming out, uh, published through bigger pockets shortly. Uh, can you give a quick, like 15 seconds on what that book is? And we'll talk about it more later in the show, but I'm just curious. Sure. So um, our original book did really well. I think I heard a lot of uh, feedback and people just saying, you know, I was really afraid of taxes and um, it, it really was presented in a way that was easy for the everyday investor to understand. But, you know, we also got feedback that people wanted a little bit more advanced strategy. So going beyond just what can I write off, but what are some things I can really do to significantly reduce taxes from you know, 50,000 to 10,000. And so the second book we set out to do just that, you know, similar format in terms of funny stories or sometimes horror stories, but showing how you're able to really slash your taxes with a little bit more advanced tax planning. All right. And so in order to read this book, you have to be a CPA and super smart, correct? No, no, it's definitely not written for CPAs. And and that's kind of, I think for Matt and I, that's the reason we started writing our first book to begin with was, you know, for us, we couldn't find any tax strategies books that didn't put us to sleep yeah. and we're CPAs. So we're like, gosh, how does anyone going to really understand these things, especially for people who are not, in, you know, not CPAs by trade? Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a goal. As long as somebody doesn't fall asleep reading it at 9 p.m. at night, then we're good, right? Yeah, there you go. That's that's a win right there with a textbook. Uh, and it is. It's fantastic. Both of them are fantastic. But uh, I want to go into a couple of the strategies that you outlined in the book and, and some things people may know a little bit about, uh, but they don't know the entire story. So quick, uh, a quick backstory and what I want where I want to start. So last year, so a lot of people maybe already know this, but if not, Amanda and Matt actually do my taxes every year. And so uh, last year, I remember you guys sent me an email and it said uh, that I owed. I mean, it was it was a chunk of money because I make good money off book sales and off of selling properties and some off cash flow, whatever else. Anyway, I owed a lot in taxes. It was like, I can't remember. I think the original email you sent me was, it was $150,000 I was going to owe. And I was like, 
Whoa. And I, I was fascinated. I knew it was going to come and I had some other huge, like, you know, big windfalls last year that just worked out well. And I knew that was coming. And then I, and then you said some, one of you responded back with, Oh, we still have that cost segregation study coming back on the apartment you own in Ohio. And I said, Oh yeah, that's right. Let, and you said, that's going to change this a little bit. So then you sent me a follow-up email and it was, Okay, you're new. You're you. You now owe. I think it was eighty thousand or seven. No, it was like seventy. It basically dropped like eighty grand or something like that off of these couple of cost segregation studies that I did. And like, I, I like my jaw like just hit the desk, right? Like, like how do you save that much money off of owning a rental property that actually, while I own that property, wasn't that great of a deal? I mean, it, it didn't make a lot of cash flow. I had a lot of ups and downs and a lot more downs than ups. I eventually sold that property, ten thirty one, into something else. But how do you have a deal that's a mediocre deal in terms of cash flow? It didn't really go up in price. I didn't buy in the path of progress. Yet I still saved a ton of money in taxes. How does that work? Can you guys explain that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's all has to do with depreciation. I mean, depreciation is probably one of our favorite things about being a real estate investor and doing taxes for a real estate investor. So uh, a good way to think about it for people who aren't aware of what it is, is, you know, you, you'll go out and buy a stock, right? You can't write off the stock when you buy it. You have to, you don't write that off until you sell the stock years down the road, right? But with, the, with rental properties, the IRS allows you to take paper, we call it paper write-offs every year for a portion of the purchase price and you spread it out over time. And so that's, that's what we call depreciation. Now, what you were able to take advantage of the cost segregation is just, it's accelerating depreciation. It's taking more sooner than spreading it out over 27 and a half years or 40 years or whatever it is, you know? So it was, it's a, a legal yeah. tax strategy to take as much depreciation sooner than later. You know, you're still getting the same amount. It's just, can we take, more over the next first five years versus over 27 and a half years. So you can get more deduction now, save more taxes now, reinvest your money and go out and buy more properties. Right. I mean, that's the idea. That's so, awesome. So when Brandon sold that property, did he have to pay back any of the depreciation gains that he was able to write off of his taxes? Generally speaking, you would, but as Brandon mentioned, he did a 1031 exchange. So there's mm -hmm. ways when you do a 1031 exchange to also kind of incorporate the, cost seg before and maybe even incorporate a new cost seg on the replacement property to kind of offset that potential depreciation recapture tax is what we call it. And that right there is why we want a good tax professional looking at this <laughs> yeah. because for Brandon and I to try to learn like the intricacies, I mean, yeah. what you're basically saying is he bought a property that maybe lost money, but he made money because he could accelerate his depreciation into like a five-year window and offset the income he made from other things. Then he would have had to pay it back when he sold but he did a 1031. So that like accelerated depreciation went to the next property, but then he could do the same thing on that property. That's becoming like four levels deep of confusion. <laughs> and this is why you want to have a book like this and people like you guys, because it's one thing to understand the actual ability to do it, but it's another to have a person who understands the parameters of how to get it done and make sure you're doing it legally. Yeah, I love how you just kind of summarize that, David, because that's exactly the goal, right? For us as CPAs and even our intent in writing the book, it, we don't really, our intention is not for the everyday investor to become a CPA and learn, how do I accelerate? And what does it mean? Is it over five years? Is it immediately? That's all the, the tasks for your CPA to do, but you need to kind of at least know the basics. So you have a conversation yeah. with your CPA or when you're analyzing a deal or, you know, like in a situation where you're about to sell your property, 
understand that that is a time when you need to talk to your CPA and say, hey, I'm buying something or I'm selling something. What does that mean? How can I take advantage from a tax perspective on this this transaction that I'm currently looking to get involved in? So Yeah. And, and let's be honest, like there's a lot of CPAs out there where if you were to ask them, you know, should I do a cost segregation study? They'd be like, uh, what? Like, because they don't under, like the tax code is so big that you can't specialize in everything. So like the same guy that prepared your business taxes or your personal tax return might not be the person that you need in your real estate business. So I'm wondering at what point, how many rentals does a person need? How far along their journey do they need to be able to hire somebody who's like a legit uh, like real estate focused, or at least understands the power of real estate and all these strategies. Where, where in that journey do you think somebody should start mm-hmm. looking for a more professional? Yeah, that's a good question. I do get that quite often. You know, how uh, what's the number of properties I should own before I hire a CPA, or how much income should I be making? I think as a strategist, the way we look at it is actually not based on those two criteria. Rather, we look at it as what is your, what are your plans for real estate? Okay, so so you could be someone who owns a rental property, but for many years you don't plan on doing anything else, and maybe you already have the best strategies in place that you don't really need a whole new strategy. Right, that's a one extreme example. The other extreme example might be you're just starting out. You don't own anything yet, but by the end of this year, you have plans in place where you're going to end up with three uh, or five, or over the next two years, you're going to have many uh, rental properties. That might be a good candidate for tax strategy and tax planning because oftentimes you want to plan ahead so that you have the, the right foundation set up and not have to unwind bad structures mm. or uh, old, you know, bad tax returns with bad depreciation two, three years down the road. So, you know, it depends on kind of what your plans are in real estate rather than, you know, what, where you currently are in real estate. That's a really good way of looking at it. You know, uh, early on, like I, I, and I want to actually cover this question, even though we probably covered it in the other interviews that we did, we've done with you, Amanda, but it's just one of the biggest questions we get. And that's the LLC question. So early on in my business, I like, I mean, really young, 21. What did I do? I went on my county or my, my state website, how to form an LLC. I formed an LLC and then I, I paid some money to somebody and then I filled out some paperwork somewhere and then I let it sit there for a while because that's what you have to do to invest in real estate. You have to go open an LLC and then you're legit, right? That's what people tend to think. I'm kidding. Of course. What is the truth? I mean, with an LLC, I mean, because had I consulted you, I didn't know who you were, but had I consulted you when I was 21, things would have been very different. I still may have opened the LLC, but I wouldn't have just opened some random thing and just let it sit there. So where does the LLC play into a real estate investor's life, especially for a newer investor? I think the way we look at LLCs, especially for real estate investors who are going to own, we'll call it, let's say we're talking about rental properties. At the end of the day, actually, from a tax perspective, you don't need to have an LLC to own rentals or run a rental property business. So from a tax perspective, nothing changes whether you own your property in your personal name or whether you own that rental in the LLC that you own, you know, 100% of with you or you and your spouse. Really, it's, it actually comes down to asset protection, you know, and so obviously we're not attorneys, but the way we talk to our clients about it is, yeah. you know, where are you at in your stage? What are you, what assets do you have you're trying to protect? What future assets are you trying to protect? And, you know, can you accomplish your goals with creating the LLC for asset protection or umbrella insurance or, you know, now we always obviously recommend they talk to their attorneys because that's really where they're going to get the best advice in terms of the asset protection. Real quick on that note then, because I've been asked this and I'm not even sure the answer. 
how do you approach the attorney slash the CPA? They're two different people that we don't have, generally don't have CPA attorneys, right? So in, in the common advice, even though we probably even gave it in the introduction of the show is consult an attorney and a CPA. And, and like, do mm-hmm. I just get both you guys on the phone? Do I just say, yeah. Hey, can we set up a, th- a three-way call? Is that how that should work? Yeah, that's a really great question. And and that's exactly the right answer, right? So oftentimes when a client comes to us and we talk about legal entity structuring. Now, Matt used a very simple example of, okay, someone just holding a rental property by themselves or with the spouse. And there's not really any tax in, implications one way or the other. But if you're flipping real estate, if you have other partners involved, um, there's definitely tax considerations to whether I have a legal entity or not. If so, what type of legal entity? And part of that discussion is, you know, the, the benefit of tax savings as well as asset protection. And oftentimes we say, okay, you know, here's our tax recommendation, but don't form any entity yet, right? You're going to talk to an attorney and they will make a legal recommendation. Once they've made a legal recommendation, then we all come to the table collectively, whether it's a conference call or an in-person meeting or just the joint email. So we're all on the same page. What did the attorney say? What did the CPA say? And do those match? Or, you know, if they match, great. Let's go ahead and start formation and how to use it. If they don't match, then it's time to get on a call and say, okay, what what are the what's the disconnect and and are there things that could be done to make sure everything works well together for the investor? And I think that's really key, getting everyone together to the table because as an investor, you don't want to be the go-between playing telephone and say, okay, yeah. this is what my CPA said or that's yeah. what my attorney said. Oftentimes you're not relaying the right information. And it's also just a waste of your time as well. But yeah, I mean, I think for most investors, the question of whether I should have an LLC actually comes from this this giant uh, myth that's out there that people feel like they need an LLC to write off expenses for their taxes. And, you know, we talked about it, like you said, Brandon, in in one of our previous podcasts, that's just not true. You know, I would say 90, maybe even 100% of the expenses that most investors will have can be deducted whether you have an LLC or not, right? Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, it's just such a huge misconception. In fact, I talked to a gentleman yesterday who said exactly what I've been, he said about himself exactly what I've been saying for years is that many people use the LLC question and the whole like, well, I don't know if I need an LLC as an excuse not to take action rather than a legit concern. It's like, well, I don't have an LLC, so I guess I can't really invest yet. It's a whole lot easier to say that than I'm afraid or uh, I'm not really sure what the next step is or I'm just too busy to invest. It's easier to say, well, I don't have an LLC. And so people have this, this fear. Other people are like just totally afraid that they're going to lose everything if they don't have an LLC. Uh, ironically, literally they know that if you try to buy a property in LLC, it's difficult anyway. Like most banks won't lend on a residential property if you have an LLC. So it's like, it's, it's, it's actually the opposite. Like having an LLC can actually hurt them and make it much more difficult. So consult with a CPA and an attorney on a, on a conference call on kind of what the best avenue there is. But yeah, there you go. You know, Keep in mind. You know I want to comment on one of the reasons I think people don't want to consult with professionals is because it could cost money. And mm, and it's yeah. very short-sighted. That's kind of how the amateur looks at everything is they say, well, what's it going to cost? As far as the professional says, well, what's it going to save me? Very mm-hmm. similar to the real estate business where they say, I don't want to pay a commission. So they hire a really bad agent who's really cheap. And then they lose tons of money selling the house. Yep. There's three benefits that I can see to why I would want to consult with a professional. And I want to see if, if you guys agree with this, Amanda and Matt. The first is asset protection, what you just mentioned. This is a way to protect yourself. It's a way to play defense. When you structure yourself the right way, you're protecting what you've already got. The next would be tax savings. 
how to save money, like what Brandon just went through. This is a way that he could offset some of the other income he made. That's offense. That's actually putting money back in your account. And then the third is when you actually look at what you're doing and you consult with someone and you keep really good records, it forces you to become aware of your profit and your loss. You may think that you're making money and you find out you weren't. This happens to me all the time. I think I'm raking it in and I look at my expenses and I say, oh my God, where did all the money go? And other businesses that I just thought were doing okay, I'm like, holy cow, I'm crushing it on these. And that you would never think to do that until you have someone else looking at your books and looking at your numbers because they're looking into you. And it allows you to make adjustments, right? I can pour the gasoline on the right fire, the one that's burning well. And I find my 20% where I know that I'm doing good in business. So you may be flipping houses and doing burrs and, and buying big buildings or syndications. And once your tax professional looks at this and they say, did you realize that you're making like three grand on a flip? You're, you're, you're taking this much risk and that's all that you're getting. And on these deals, you're doing really good. And maybe you can actually adjust your business plan around that advice. Would you guys agree that in your experience, that's what you've seen? Yeah, yeah, I love that story um, because that's when we see uh, quite often, uh, unfortunately, what clients is say, hey, I flipped a property, I'm making a lot of money and I have a big tax problem. And when we ask the follow-up questions, you know, what was your heart, you know, is, is that all the expenses? What about the hard money loan interest and the points and the fees? Uh, after all that, it's like, oh, actually, no, I didn't make as much money as I thought. So yeah, if you have someone helping you along the way, you have good uh, financial statements where you can see how you're doing and really time, I think that's very helpful than finding that out, you know, next year or maybe even next April. So yeah, yeah. No, it's not, it's not uncommon for someone to, to your point, David, like, could they finally get around to looking at their organizing of things and it's 18 months down the road. And that's a lot better to figure that out in month three or month four and do that quarterly than it is to do it oh. a year and a half later. You know? Yeah. You know, I'm going to say this on the show. I'll probably regret that I'm saying this. Uh, I, when I started selling houses for the David green team, I am not the guy that wants to slow down to look at the numbers. I didn't have anyone on the team to do it. And my philosophy was, hey, I'm just going to make as much money as I can and let the chips fall where they may. <laughs> In hindsight, it still probably was the right call that I didn't stop to look at what I was doing. Instead, I just kept making the money. But what I found is when I did bring someone in to look, the amount of taxes that I had to pay would make you sick if I told you guys how much because we weren't keeping records of all the people that I hired and paid and the salaries. They just weren't being noted. I was told it was being noted and it wasn't. And I went almost three years without tracking any of that and had to pay way, way more to the IRS than I should have because I didn't keep good books. Like literally for the last two years, I've almost been working for free just to pay back the taxes that I made like a year ago, right? Very discouraging. And now that it's actually, I have people in place to do that. What I'm thinking is over the next 10 years, that will have, that will save me over a million dollars, probably closer to $2 million that I put the systems in place right now. So the point isn't I'm beating myself up because I was going fast and being successful and growing a business. It was still better to grow a business and then figure out how to, how to track everything. But the sooner you can put these things in place, it's not just saving you the money when you first do it. It's all of the future of your business that you have the next 40 years if you wait 10 years to do it, you will be losing so much that you're not aware of. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, you gotta, you gotta play to your strengths, right? I mean, you know, you know yourself and you know that, Hey, I'm very good at taking action and doing this. I'm not very good at yes. this over here or doing the numbers. So go out and hire somebody who can do that. Or, you know, whether it's a CPA or whether it's a team member that's in house and doing it for you. I mean, 
you're not trying to learn everything yourself, obviously, or do everything yourself. Yeah. And I love how you mentioned, you, you use the word systems, right? Because I'm a big systems person and we're not saying as an investor, you need to stop doing what you're good at, uh, but you just need to have the systems in place with the help of your tax advisor, your legal advisor, so that these things are naturally built into your everyday business. Because the goal is not for you to stop doing what you're good at. We all know that there are so many tax loopholes especially designed for real estate investors. So it's just a matter of making sure you're taking advantage of them. Um, and of course, you know, with the recent tax reform, that's just, you know, been even better for real estate investors of all mm. types. So yeah, definitely. I mean, it's just a low hanging fruit for all investors to make sure you capitalize on those tax savings. What are, what are some of the tax reforms? Like what are some things that have changed in the last couple of years, especially since the uh, first book came out uh, that real estate investors are being affected by? Uh, yeah, there, I mean, there's been many changes. Uh, one of the more notable ones. So, well, let's start with uh, cost segregation, right? Accelerate depreciation always has uh, been available, but uh, as part of the tax reform, we now have a 100% bonus depreciation on a lot of assets. And what does that and, mean? And uh, bonus depreciation just means that instead of writing something off over five years, 17 years, or 27, even 40 years, you might be able to write it all off immediately in the first year. And so that's huge when we talk about, you know, if we, if for people who are in the Airbnb business, for example, right, short-term rentals, a lot of times we have to uh, furnish our properties with uh, furniture, microwaves, all, t- all types of stuff. Those things used to have to be depreciated over a couple years, but currently you can take an immediate write-off for it this year as part of bonus depreciation. So it makes cost segregation, you know, even better than what it used to be. Yeah. Can you, can you describe real quick for those who are are not sure exactly? I mean, we talked a little about cost segregation earlier, but basically, I guess maybe just tell me if I'm right or wrong here uh, and how I usually just explain it. It's like, you have a house, but in reality, you don't have a house. You've got 400 square feet of carpet and 800 square feet of tile, and you've got 75 windows and you've got, well, hopefully not that many, but you've got all these individual parts. And we're saying, well, the IRS says you can take a stove over five years or seven years. Mm-hmm. So why would we take the stove over 27 and a half, which is the whole house as a whole. So we're basically breaking out all the individual little pieces so we can deduct them over a five-year or seven-year period. But now with bonus depreciation, we're now deducting them over a one-year period. Is that right? Am I explaining that correctly? You should should be a CPA. I should be a CPA. There we go. (laughs) All right. So that's the the power is that you're... And is this something that somebody can just go and... Oh, actually, let me ask two questions on the cost segregation thing. Is somebody today who's listening to this who owns a rental property, maybe two rental properties, small house, duplex, $200,000, $300,000 in assets that they own, got mortgages on it. Should they be looking at things like cost segregation studies or is this, is this for the David Green, Brandon Turner, you know, I own dozens of properties kind of situations. Where, where is this important? That's a good, uh, that's a good question. I think that's a misconception too, that people feel like cost segregation is only for, you know, the ultimate investor, like the two of you, uh, or- Ultimate uh, investor. That sounds like a TV show. Yeah, we should make a TV show called The Ultimate Investor. We're going to do it. (laughs) Can we start hashtagging ourselves that way on social media? (laughs) Yes. Can I get a royalty for that? Uh, Yes. Yes. (laughs) 
<laughs> Today on the Ultimate Investor, somebody somebody needs to <laughs> chipmunk make, in the attic. Yeah, take like the a video of the Ultimate Warrior running around in the ring yeah. and put Brandon's face on it and my there face on it. That'd be fun. Yeah, that would work. That's a good idea. Yeah, I'm gonna keep the beard. Yeah. Um, yeah so, or uh, large commercial property investors, right? Yeah. That you know, okay, those are the people for cost segregation, and that's true, right? The more properties you own, the larger the the dollar amount, the better it is. But it does not mean if you own two or three duplexes that you shouldn't consider it. It just depends on your profile. Depends on if that is a good strategy for you. Uh, let's say you're someone who is a high W two income earner and you're at the fifty, you know, over fifty percent tax rate between federal and state, right? So, I mean, even if you have a small single family residential and you get thirty thousand more in depreciation, that saves you fifteen thousand of cash, right? Yeah. So, I, I wouldn't reserve that just for the ultimate investor, <laughs> but it could be for anyone. That's cool. Yeah, de- definitely. Now, who does a cost segregation study? Uh, can anybody do it? Is this something you just have paper you file or how does that actually happen? You typically, yeah, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not for the everyday person to do on their own, unfortunately, but uh, we recommend you hire like there's companies out there that specialize in it. Uh, they're generally like engineering companies of some kind, just have specialties. They'll go out and they'll re- look at your property, analyze it and, you know, do all the, uh, the mumbo jumbo they mm-hmm. do, you know, but, um, so yeah, it's, it's unfortunately not one that you can do on your own or do online. Um, we've seen people try and do that, uh, based on talking to colleagues that kind of usually backfires under IRS audit, you know? So, yeah. So it's um, the engineers that break out the components of the building and then your tax advisor, your CPA will then calculate the depreciation based on the components that are broken out. Here's, here's something really cool about it too, is that with a lot of things in the tax world, you know, as you get closer to year end, there's some things you actually have to do before year end to take advantage of tax deductions or tax strategies. Cost segregation is actually one you can wait until the following year. So if your tax returns due April, you can wait until you have 90% of your tax return done and decide, okay, is a cost segregation, work with your CPA, decide is a cost segregation going to make sense based on these final numbers. If so, you pull the trigger, you extend your tax return and you get it done in the next six months. So it's that's not something cool. that has to be done by year end. So that's, that's really cool. So you can kind of wait to see, get pretty concrete numbers before pulling the trigger mm-hmm. and spending, you know, spending the money on it. Yeah, that's very cool. You know, you made a good point that a lot of people will be tempted to think, well, I'll just do it myself. I'll Google how to do a cost segregation study. I'll do it myself. And then when Uncle Sam comes knocking on your door to do the audit, I can guarantee the feeling you get in the pit of your stomach will not be a happy one. I wanted to ask you if there's other things that you've seen investors think they can do on their own and then later mess it up. And I'll start it off with an example that I learned. You'll often hear Brandon and I talk about the 1031 like-kind exchange. It's one of the building fundamental blocks of tax savings. And a lot of people know that after you you uh, you have your house for sale or your property for sale, you have, what, 45 days to identify a list of properties and 180 days to close on it. And everyone is more or less aware of those rules. And so I've seen people that think I will just sell my house with the realtor, identify the houses through the website or whatever I do, and then go close on them. And they come to me to help them buy the new house. And I say, wait a minute. So you closed on a house last week and the money's sitting in your bank account. And they say, yeah, now I got 45 days to go identify properties. Mm. And I facepalm. Can you explain to the audience why it's easy to think that you know what you're doing, but why that person would not qualify for a 1031 and maybe other examples of things that investors should be aware of? Don't try this at home. Yeah, but can you explain what a face bonk is a first? Face palm. Oh, yeah. yeah. oh. uh, why would you do that? <laughs> All these kids in their, their hippie <laughs> language. <laughs> uh, yeah, actually, that's a that's a really good example. To be honest, we've seen that 
more times than we should is that, yeah, the person thinks they can do their own 1031 exchange and doesn't understand that they can't take, take that money and put it in their bank account because at the end of the day, they think they've accomplished the same thing, right? Like, so yeah, there's 1031 exchanges. I mean, real, you know, real estate professionals, another one, you know, without getting into nitty gritty of everything, that's another one that people think they can do on their own or they yeah. think they can use, you know, we've seen a lot where they're hiring somebody, you know, John Smith down the street who doesn't have a real estate background and being a tax accountant, but doesn't understand the rules and they think they can do it the right way. And they, they miss an election or something like that on their tax return. That, that's, that's a huge, that's a huge problem. Yeah. I yeah. think, uh, you know, in the past couple of years, uh, we probably all agree that real estate market has done really well. Right. And so as CPAs, the number of 1031 exchanges that we're seeing and reporting has skyrocketed. You know, I think yeah. a, a mm-hmm. big percentage of our clients have, have been selling properties and replacing it with one or even multiple properties. And yeah, I mean, you need to have an intermediary involved prior to the sale of your property. Mm-hmm. So if, if you know, you're telling your real estate broker after the fact, or even your CPA after the the fact that's too, too little too late with respect to 1031. And yes, besides those, the the number of days for identification and replacement, there are a lot of other roles. So like in the fact, constructive I, receipt, right? That's yeah. what this person didn't understand. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. And we had um, uh, oftentimes just not knowing, you know, what do I have to do in order to defer all of the tax? I just talked to uh, a new client the other day who got bad advice from their CPA that they only invested, reinvested the cash that they got from closing uh, uh-huh. into the 1031. And what they ended up doing was essentially owing taxes on the entire transaction. So he went through the stress of you know, trying to meet the deadlines and, and paying an intermediary and really didn't get any tax savings at all. So in the new book, we, we talk a lot about 1031 exchange and, you know, frankly, some of these horror stories so that hopefully people can get an idea what can go wrong when you're not uh, meeting all of the specific rules and requirements. But we also talk about what are some creative things that you can do mm. with 1031 exchange, like how can we take cash out of a 1031 exchange without paying taxes, right? Because that's Ooh. something that a lot of people want to do as well. How do, you, how do you take cash out of a 1031 exchange without paying taxes? You buy the book. <laughs> <laughs> Give you a hint. One of the one of the ways is refinancing, right? All right, all right, all right. I'm, I'm pumped for that. No, but uh, Sorry, here, that, that wasn't subtle enough. No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it. Uh, but here's here's actually where I was going to go with that. I want to talk about 1031 exchanges from a not tax standpoint, from a uh, another standpoint. And that is, yes, okay. So for those, uh, again, if you're still confused about 1031, you sell a property, you buy another one, and if you do the rules all correctly, you can potentially not pay any capital gains tax on the profit you made on the first thing. Are we all, are we good with that basic definition? Yeah. All right. So here's the problem with that. Today, the market has gone up significantly. I mean, we are in a very competitive hot market. People are selling this property, which was performing really well for them. They had a good grasp on it. They had a good handle on it and they were making good money. They sell it because it's a great time to sell. But now what they find themselves in is they have a 45 day shotgun wedding here to find a new property 
at a time in the market that's incredibly difficult to find great deals. So now what they are trying to save on taxes by, you know, dumping into a new deal. And, and I'm not telling that they buy end up buying something bad. And I'm not saying this, that this is some other person did something stupid, but this is my own story. Like, this is what I did, right? I sold my 24 unit I had in Washington. And I don't think I've ever fully told this on the podcast. And then I went and bought a property in Ohio. Now, there was a lot of things I did wrong there. And I don't regret any of the choices really I made on that property. And it, it's all fine, especially because of the cost segregation savings and all that. But what happened was I sold a really good performing property into another property because I had to find something and it was a very mediocre to not good deal. I wouldn't call it a bad deal, just a not good deal for me. And honestly, one of the biggest reasons because I didn't listen to my friend David Green and pay attention to his book on finding the core four. So I never had my core four in Ohio. I never had a rock star property manager. But I had a decent, that you but. would have had you had more time, right? That's what you get. Yes, had I had more time, the 45 days killed me. And even though a lot of it was like I was moving to Hawaii and I was busy and I was having a baby. And so anyway, my point being in all of this is be careful with the 1031 exchange because yes, it it can be a great tax savings. But if you're going to sell a good property just to go have to go buy a bad property just to save taxes, I mean, just be careful. I guess that 45 day thing is is legit. It's you really got to understand the, the difference between practice and theory, like the 203k loan in theory sounds yeah. amazing. Oh, you're going to give yep. me money to do my house. Then you look at what it's like in practice and I got to get three bids from licensed contractors and yeah. uh, they got to agree to get paid by the government when the government decides to pay them. And months later, yeah, yeah it's yeah. hard to find a contractor as it is. And so you realize it doesn't always work out in practice. And that's why we love tax professionals because not only this is what I really like, exactly. not only do they know the law, they are working with other investors who are probably smarter than me and seeing what worked for them <laughs> and then bringing that strategy into my world when I say, here's my problem and they've already seen it. You know, you don't want a surgeon that you're the only person they ever operate on. That's my surgeon for life. He doesn't work <laughs> on anyone else, right? I want somebody who's worked on a lot, hundreds of other people and they know like what different bodies do and can kind of uh, respond to mine that same way. Yeah, I think that's a great example because um, oftentimes we'll talk to a client, they'll say, hey, I'm thinking of selling these properties. We go through the scenario of 1031 exchange and they come back and say, you know, I really uh, couldn't find any good replacements, right? So maybe the decision is we hold on to this property and instead we do a cash out refi, use that money to just invest in more properties. That way we don't have to pay commissions. We don't have to worry about 1031 exchange because it looks like we already have a good performance property, maybe we just wanted to tap into the equity to grow our portfolio. So we do also see that quite a bit as an alternative, right? Yeah. And also, yeah. or also maybe the person didn't actually need to do a 1031 exchange for tax purposes. We've unfortunately seen that where clients will pull the trigger on a 1031 exchange without consulting with us because they've heard people talk about how great it is. And then lo and behold, like, well, you had some carry forward losses that you could have used to offset mm. the gain and not have to worry about the 45 days and the stress and the you know, maybe, you know, there's studies out there. I'm sure you guys have seen it where people will pay like seven to 10% more on average for a property that they're buying yeah. as a replacement property because they're up against the, the tr- yep. clock, you know, and that's, a, that's a, that's a horrible thing to do, you know, a horrible reason to buy a property, obviously. So yeah. one, one thing that I do in my own investing is because I flip houses and I buy rentals. I, I do a lot of different things. I limit how often I flip and I really prefer to build wealth the boring way, which is buy and hold, right? The Burr method is, is a popular term we're using. I wrote the book on that, but it's really just a way to do buy and hold. Can you share with us as far from a tax perspective uh, only, 
why you would prefer buy and hold versus flipping. And for people who are looking at, oh man, I can flip a house and make 50 grand. How mm-hmm. that 50 grand often ends up being like 20 grand, yeah. 25 grand when you're done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think the biggest difference is when you flip properties, what a lot of people don't understand is that it's not capital gains income. It's not at a lower tax rate. Uh, in fact, it's ordinary income tax rate. So whatever your personal highest bracket is for the year. In addition, you oftentimes have to pay self-employment tax, which could be an additional 15% on top of federal and state income taxes. So that's where that, you know, your example, David, comes from where, okay, we made 100,000, we might lose 50, $60,000 of that to taxes. Um, in addition, with fix and flip, because we're getting rid of the property, we don't have any depreciation left, right? Versus in a very similar transaction, if we kept that property as a Burr transaction, now we get to take depreciation. We can do mm-hmm. accelerated depreciation. We can accelerate all the rehab that's been done. Um, and we don't have any capital gains or ordinary income. So it's essentially you know, no tax liability and you get additional write-offs that you otherwise wouldn't have with respect to flipping. So yeah, for our clients who flip, and we do have a lot of them who do a handful of flips, whereas, you know, it, it's okay. There are some deals that just make sense. It does not make sense to hold. But ideally, you are simultaneously keeping some of those as rentals too. So you can use the rentals to offset some of that tax liability from the flips. Mm. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Listen up, business owners, because I've got some quick little math for you. Fewer costs equal more profit. The problem? You're spending more than ever on operations, materials, deliveries, software, and more. So why not reduce your costs and headaches with NetSuite by Oracle? NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Oh, also, NetSuite lives in the cloud, which means you can reduce IT costs with no hardware required. Cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because now you've got one unified business management suite. You can improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. It makes sense that over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. So don't let rising costs sink your business growth. And by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash biggerpockets. NetSuite.com slash BiggerPockets. NetSuite.com slash BiggerPockets. Whether you need to buy or sell, or you're just obsessed with looking at homes for sale, 
Redfin's got you covered. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes to help you see new homes first. And they give you personalized recommendations based on the homes you like, so you can find a home that's just right for you, whether that's a cabin, a craftsman, or a castle. With the top-rated Redfin app, you can favorite homes, share listings with others, and schedule tours even on the same day with a local Redfin agent who can help guide you through the whole home buying process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents have the experience to help you get the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put towards what matters most to you, like your next home. In fact, last year, Redfin saved home sellers $127 million. No matter where you are in your real estate journey, Redfin can help. Download the Redfin app to get started today. Can I ask a kind of an advanced question here, but that might apply to a lot of people. Let's just say hypothetically, somebody was flipping houses a little bit, like doing a couple of flips. For example, we closed on one this week and my partner and I cleared $133,000. That's actually true. And we're splitting it 50-50. So I walked in with $65,000 roughly, let's call it. Now that's money I got to pay a lot of taxes on Hawaii state tax and, you know, low, uh, federal tax. I'm like, I'm going to just get, you know, killed on this. At the same time, within the same company that we flip houses, we also buy rental properties and we buy other stuff. And I have employees that do that work in every aspect. In fact, I might even hire a new employee shortly here who's going to be doing a lot of stuff for a lot, like just real estate in general. How much of that, and I know this is very specific, but when you have employees, how much of the profit from flipping can you offset by saying, well, I, you know, I paid this employee $65,000 and I made $65,000 on flipping. So that's just a break even. I own no taxes. Is that how that works? Or how does that, how can people look at that scenario? You know what I'm, what I'm saying? Yeah, I would say the key is just trying to determine what, you know, how much that employee is actually doing for the flip specifically versus mm -hmm. for just, like you said, your real estate business, right? Ideally, yeah. we want to try to have an argument that, you know, 90% or 95% of what this person is doing is for Brandon Turner's whole real estate empire, if you will. Yeah, maybe yep. they helped out a little bit here and there on the fix and flip. And the ultimate investor empire. I mean, this is getting good. <laughs> you know, maybe they're doing a little bit with helping out on the flip, but you know, maybe your partner's one doing the majority of the work. Uh, because then that could result in a situation kind of like what you said, we had 50,000 of flip profit, but I had this employee salary of 50. So that really wipes out the taxes on the transaction. Mm -hmm. Right. And a yeah. key here, I know you 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 briefly mentioned that the rentals and flips are in the same entity. Um, they don't have to be in the same entity in order okay. for the rentals to offset the flip. So, you know, if let's say you're flipping in company one and then personally you own a bunch of rental properties, generally the income and losses will offset each other, assuming they all end up on your personal return. Okay. Yeah. Cause I mean, cause the ultimate idea here that I'm, that I, I love the idea of thinking through this and is if you can flip, let's say you made half a million dollars a year flipping houses, you made half a million a year flipping houses and you had a team of people doing that or, you know, a few people involved was half a million. Then you hired five people at a hundred grand a year to that you're paying salaries to overall. And between that, like they're buying rentals and they're buying, they're helping with the flips. And here's what I'm getting at with this. The idea of you're turning sh like pa or active income 
flipping income into, then you're dumping stuff into buying rentals at the same time. And so essentially you're just paying no taxes, but you're building long-term wealth. Mm -hmm. Like that's what I'd like that. It seems like an awesome strategy if we can pull that off. Right. Is that how that works? So let's say you, you, you fig, you you did a flip and you made a hundred thousand dollars of profit. You turn around and take that hundred thousand as a down payment on a $300,000 rental property where you do a cost segregation on, then maybe that's enough depreciation by itself Mm. just to offset the taxes on the flip. And Smart. if you have someone like Amanda helping you with this, whatever you're paying them is much less than what they're saving you with what you're doing. And that's how the professional looks at these situations is they don't, I'm not irritated that I have to pay a tax professional. It's, oh, this person is going to save me so much like what you just described that it becomes an investment in the business. And that's, I just, I'm really harping on that because I see, you know, in the businesses that I'm running that oftentimes where I tried to save money, I ended up costing myself money. Yeah. So another thing I like to point out with house flippers is you get hammered on taxes. I just, unless you're an experienced flipper, you just do not understand how bad it's going to be. But when you lose money, the government doesn't show up and say, let us reimburse you for 50% of your loss. Like we were going to take when, when you made a profit, right? It really is your, when it goes well, that's capped. But when it goes bad, there's nothing that can stop it from going really, really bad. And so unless I'll, you're a giant billion dollar bank, then the government will reimburse then you. You're for your losses. Then you're too Turner, big to fail. Or if you're brand new, you become yes. the ultimate investor. The ultimate You'll be too investor. big to fail. And we will all dive in and save you so that you won't <laughs> <Yes>. actually <laughs> lose your money. <laughs> so guys, I know one thing that's really popular right now is short-term rentals. You know, in a market like this, there's you have to kind of be a little bit creative to make things work. And short-term rentals is a way that you can increase your income. Can you talk about some of the common write-offs for that, uh, tax strategies that, that people may be missing out on that would benefit them from, from getting this book or consulting with you when it comes to short-term? Yeah, I think the cool thing about short-term rentals is it's from a tax perspective, it's a lot like long-term rentals. So from in terms of deductions, there's a lot of the same things, but as kind of Amanda was talking about earlier is with like the Airbnb model, right? Where sometimes you're going to going to buy a house with a plan to make it a short-term rental. So obviously most of these short-term rentals are furnished, right? So you could be spending 15, 20, $25,000 on just that stuff alone, just to furnish the property. So with this bonus appreciation and the new rules that kind of came out a couple of years ago, that's an immediate tax write-off of 20, $25,000 right away versus, you know, on a long-term rental, maybe some of that you can write off right away, but maybe some of that you got to write off over five years. That can be, that can be a slight difference, but yeah, just from a pure economic standpoint too, I, I'm amazed when we look at tax returns, you'll see a tax return for a single family house that's pulling in $140,000 in gross rents. And you're like, this isn't adding up, you know, it's not penciling out over 12 months. It just doesn't, mm-hmm. something sounds off. And then you obviously figure out it's a short-term rental. So I think financially people are, it's it's a model that's working very well. And, um, and then, you know, you can still take advantage of the depreciation and things like that from a tax perspective. I just love hearing success stories. We have a couple of clients who, you know, maybe both husband and wife were f- working full time. And once they got into the short-term rental business that maybe in a year or two, we had, you know, one or two uh, clients where the spouse has already stopped working uh, and just kind of doing the short-term rental that's already replaced their W-2 income and, you know, having lots of depreciation and write-offs to, you know, to really make the same amount of money that they were making when both of them were working full-time. I think one of the the common misconceptions is that people are under the impression short-term rentals are taxed differently or taxed mm-hmm. higher than long-term rentals. And at least in terms of what we see, that's not the case for the majority of the clients. So traditionally, 
Airbnb, VRBO, it's just going to be regular, you know, rental tax rates. Now, if you're operating your a short-term rental similar to a hotel business, that's generally when you might be paying, you know, maybe like 15% more in self-employment tax. So just real quick, the definition, you know, what does it mean to be a hotel business? Um, it means you're offering auxiliary services beyond what a short-term rental does. So if you also can do airport pickup and drop-off, or if you offer mm-hmm. food and beverage services, right? Not just giving them water and salt, but offering, yeah. you know, I'm going to cook for you like a bed and breakfast, or, you know, they can use a rental car while they're staying there. Or, so, or you're change, changing the linens or sheets and towels every day, like a normal hotel would do, right? Right. Which yeah. most people don't, right? You, you, you change, yeah. you do a cleaning once people leave. So for the vast majority of our clients in the short-term rental space, they get all of the same benefits as long-term rental investments and, you know, same depreciation, and they don't have to worry about that additional tax. What about what about those who are playing the Airbnb arbitrage game, which is where they rent an apartment and then they rent that apartment out on Airbnb or they rent a house and they rent it on Airbnb. They don't actually own the real estate. So now they can't get any of the, I mean, they're not, they're not real estate investors at that point from a tax standpoint, right? Or how does that work? They are. I mean, for tax purposes, it's treated just like any other rental property. The only difference okay. is because in the rental arbitrage, we don't own the property. So we don't get to take depreciation. We don't get to okay. use cost segregation. Um, but instead, what we deduct is the rent expense that we're paying to the the actual property owner. Okay. Well, is, is there any difference? And this is probably a stupid question. I haven't thought this through at all, but it just occurred to me. You, we can only deduct mortgage interest on a like on our taxes when we own a property. But if you're playing the arbitrage game, you can deduct the entire rent amount, right? So doesn't it seem like you'd actually potentially make more money by owning, like at least now by owning, by doing the arbitrage game than by doing, does that, does that make sense? I, I see where you're going. I think it just kind of comes down to numbers, right? It's, it's you know, how yeah. much, what is the, what is the differential? What are you paying rent versus mortgage. mortgage interest or property? Because yeah. you got, remember when you're owning, you know, you got the, interest of property tax and utilities, you know, as a renter, you're probably, all you yeah. got is rent. Maybe you're paying some utilities. That's true. Yep. Yeah. That's also maybe it's very, actually pretty similar. It's also know. a very short term way of looking at it though. Cause you're only looking at the cash flow. You might maximize cash flows doing the arbitrage style, but you're not owning an asset that you're paying down the mortgage on and it's appreciating yeah. over time and you get all the benefits that come from real estate ownership there. Yeah, I agree. It reminds the Airbnb arbitrage thing reminds me more of like flipping where it's it's a business. Yeah. If you stop doing it, you stop making money. There's nothing wrong with it. It's yeah. great. In fact, like if I was suddenly like bankrupt right now and had to start all the way over and had nothing, I'd probably start with the Airbnb arbitrage it's game. Kind of like rental wholesaling, right? Like I find yeah, a yeah. person that has a house that they're not using and I find a person That's that funny. wants a house to use. It's you're finding a person who wants to sell their home and a person that will buy the contract. It's very Hold on, similar. I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go yeah. copyright that term right now. Hold yeah. on a second. <laughs> yeah, you are. <laughs> Matt's friend <laughs> with typing this entire podcast. <laughs> the, the CPA attorney over there is like, I've got 24 uh, patents that I'm going to put in for trademarks. Ultimate investors are already too late. Someone's going to hashtag us and get a bill. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. So this is really good stuff. Really good stuff. Uh, well, there's probably like a hundred more topics we, we, I would love to cover, but we just do not have, do not have time. But just to give a quick plug for the book, it's called the book on advanced tax strategies, cracking the code for savvy real estate investors. 
volume two because it's a sequel of the uh, the first book. And uh, there's a ton of stuff in the book, all details about the new tax laws, stuff about opportunity zones, which I'd love to maybe touch on if we get time, self-directed IRA stuff, short-term rental stuff, and pretty much any scenario like that you have questions on, you're going to find information in there. So if you guys want to get the book, it is for sale today at biggerpockets.com slash advanced tax book, advanced tax book. Uh, and you can get the physical book by $24.99. And I would actually recommend the ultimate package, which includes the physical book, like shipped to your house, audio book, and the ebook, which is cool. And there's a little bunch of bonus materials and such as well. So it's one of those things you might spend, you know, on the ultimate edition, like 50 bucks. But if you look at how much money you're going to be saving, it is one of those no brainers. So check it out. Biggerpockets.com slash advanced tax book. You can also find it if you can't remember that biggerpockets.com slash store. So uh, anything else you guys want to add about the book or your, any of uh, the bonus stuff or anything you want to add there? Uh, no, I, I would just say, don't let the name scare you. You know, I, <laughs> we had to call yeah. it the advanced tax book, but it's uh, hopefully the goal is that, you know, it's filled with stories, uh, real life stories from our investors that, that are anonymous, of course. But yeah, it's real stories about, you know, when tax strategies are done correctly, how powerful they could be in terms of saving you taxes and, and just retaining wealth. Uh, but also the horror stories about how, you know, when you do a, a small thing incorrectly, uh, how that could cost a ton of money uh, in lost taxes. Can I ask a serious question? Are all the anonymous horror stories mine? <laughs> um, <laughs> just, just the ones with the pictures uh, of guys with beards next to them, you know? Yes. Okay, good. Yeah. The, yeah. The little, the we, little we icon the name, next so to each one that's actually me. Yeah. Thanks. It's yeah. random. It's random burner. And yeah, random burner. Weird. Yeah. Weird. All right. Uh, so anyway, pick up the book, you guys. Check it out. I think you'll like it a lot. It's amazing as it is the last one. And maybe even pick up, if you haven't read the first book, pick up both at the same time because uh, there is different information in both. They're not like, it's not the same thing. It's not just updated. It's actual new information. So it's a sequel. It's like the ultimate investor part two. That's going to be the, the new one. All right. With that, last thing I want to cover before we move on to a bunch of fire round questions concerning taxes, opportunity zones. What the heck is an opportunity zone? And why does it matter? Like, give me a, give me an example of why that would matter. Sure. So, you know, we talked about 1031 exchanges quite a bit, right? When you sell asset, you, when you sell real estate, you replace with real estate and you defer the taxes on the capital gains you've made. So opportunity zone is a very similar concept uh, where you can, you know, sell real estate and buy real estate, defer the tax. But one of the biggest differences is that opportunity zone does not, is not limited to the sale of real estate. And so we have a lot of clients who have stocks that's also appreciated in value in the past, you know, X number of years, or people who work for the high-tech industry that just have appreciated stock and they're wanting to get into real estate um, to sell the stock and use that money for real estate, but they don't want to pay the hefty taxes. So Opportunity Zone is a great way for them to be able to do so, sell stocks, avoid or delay the taxes and reinvest that into Opportunity Zone real estate in our example. Um, All right. So, go ahead. so I sell a business. Well, let's say I own a business or stocks or whatever, and I'm going to clear a million dollars in profit from this sale. They don't have a 1031 for, for business or for stocks, but I, I can, you, I can put that money. Do I have to put the, the million dollars I made or is it the entire, is it like the, 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 the real estate version of 1031, right? Where you have to put the entire amount or is it just the profit? Yeah. So a uh, good question. So for 10, for the opportunity zone, it's optional how much you want to okay. put in. So in your example, if we have, if we sold our business for 2 million, but we cleared a million in cash, 
you can put two million or you can put a million if you wanted to. Um, if okay. you wanted to only put five hundred thousand, that's fine. You defer five hundred thousand dollars of that from tax, and the rest you pay taxes on. So it's very flexible. We don't need to have an intermediary. So David, if you have a client that's coming to you, you don't have to face palm. You can say, "Hey, let's look at opportunity zone," uh, because you you didn't do a ten thirty one exchange. So it's it's very flexible. The other benefit of the opportunity zone that's really great is you know we'll continue with your example, Brandon, of a million dollars. We're gonna invest that into an opportunity zone that holds a piece of apartment, let's say, and we hold it for 10 years. Let's say that property went from a million dollars to $3 million. One of the benefits is that the $2 million of appreciation potentially could be completely tax-free forever. Okay. So that is an added benefit of the opportunity zone. And I think one of the main reasons why that's been such a, a popular topic. So what's the deal with the seven year thing? Wasn't there like a, you have to pay it back in seven years or something like that? But if you hold it for 10, isn't there a thing with that? Or am I making yes, it up? Yes. No, you're, you're right. So when it first came out, it was the end of 2017. Mm-hmm. So they had this window. If you held the replacement property for five years, you could defer or um, avoid 10% of the taxes that you would have had to pay originally. If you held it for seven years, you could avoid 15% of the taxes. Now, if somebody goes in at this point in time, they're only looking at the five-year window because they, they cut off for when you have to pay the taxes actually the end of 2026. So there is no more, they can't even make the seven years anymore. Okay. So once you get there, cause once you get to the end of 2026, you have to pay the taxes that you would have had to pay when you sold your property originally, regardless of whether you actually sell the replacement property by the end of 2026. So how does that like, go back to the million dollar? I put a million bucks into an opportunity zone, whether it's a fund right. or my own deal, I can do either one, right? So somebody else's fund. Uh, so it's an opportunity zone fund. It doesn't have to be okay. a syndication, which is a misconception. Okay. So let's say Brandon and Heather created an LLC and we call that an opportunity zone fund. That's perfectly uh, fine. Okay. So I take my million bucks, I put it into a thing, but I want to hold it for 10 years because I want to pay no taxes forever, except for I owe taxes on it in year seven. Where do I get that money for taxes? Do I, is that? So, and that's, that's a, that's a, thing that everyone's got to be aware of and talk to their advisor about and plan for, because, you know, how are you going to have liquidity? What's the liquidity going to be mm-hmm. in 2026? So that, you know, that's something you got to plan for, obviously. Yeah. And hopefully, you know, in the example we use, you sold your business for 2 million, right? So today you're clearing an additional million dollars of cash. So in the meantime, you can invest it, just make sure that there is liquidity by 2026 to pay for some of that. And that's the main difference with Opportunity Zone versus 1031 Exchange. 1031 Exchange, you know, if if we sell a property for uh, a million for $2 million, we have to replace, you know, we have to buy replacement properties of around 2 million to get the full deferral. But in this scenario, you only have to, or you only need to reinvest the gain. So plenty, you know, you can basically take your equity back out in cash and there are no taxes at all today. Wow. Very good. Cool. Well, that, that's the, uh, that's the character dangling, right? Yeah. Is that if you can hold it for 10 years, the appreciation you get on your replacement property can be totally tax-free. Whereas a 1031 exchange there's nothing prevents you from continuing to swap and swap and swap. You know, that's one of the tax strategies swap until you drop, right? Like just keep exchanging until you die. <laughs> I've never heard that uh, before. That's funny. But That's the um, third thing yeah, you said that rhymes. Mumbo yeah, jumbo, <laughs> nitty gritty, swap until you drop. Did I, did I say nitty gritty to you? Yeah, oh, you did. Man, I noticed that you got a man, thing for gotta, rhymes. Like this is a, a this is a freestyle rapper this turned is, CPA. Is, uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right, I got I got to get your taxes and then get in a cipher. Yeah. Yep. 
Oh. And when I first met Matt the very first time, I think we met in person. We had like, uh, I don't know, we were eating lunch or something. My first yeah. thought was, this guy's a rapper. This guy clearly, <laughs> no, I mean, everything about him match? screams, I am from the streets right. and the hood and I rap. Right. Everything totally. about it. Yeah, clearly. Absolutely. That's the first time <laughs> anyone's ever heard that about me. <laughs> all right. So two quick clarifications on the Opportunity Zone. First of all, Opportunity Zones, where are they and who defined what an Opportunity Zone is? And then uh, all of this is all wrapped in one question how do you figure out what they are? Where are they? Who defined it? And why did the government, well, I'll give you a hint. The government defined it. Why did they pick those areas? What does that mean? Uh, good question. So the, the government, yeah, so it's defined by the government and these are just areas they, they want revitalization uh, projects to come in and common misconception when we, when, when we hear the word opportunity zone, uh, investors are thinking about, you know, the worst neighborhoods of mm-hmm. Detroit, right? (laughs) Just with like abandoned buildings. And that's not necessarily true. There are opportunity zones all over the U.S., also in coastal cities like California, uh, in Malibu, Santa Barbara, New York City, Hawaii um, also has opportunity zones. So so they're not necessarily what you tend to think of when it comes to, 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 you know, really run down areas. Yeah. Here, here in Maui, the opportunity zones are either, I know there's one over in Wailuku, which is like the rough part of Maui, which is, you know, rough part of Maui, but it's like the rough part. And then it's over by like Costco and Walmart. And it's like the mm-hmm. nicest developed area. It's the, like, I don't know how they chose though, but it's like, they picked yeah. the worst area and the best area. And that's opportunity zones here for Maui. I don't yeah. know, it's weird. So people are, I mean, so I think oftentimes people are shocked to find out, you know, where they are. Cause we found Matt and I were looking and uh, in Fullerton where our offices in Southern California, there's opportunity zones really close to our office. And, you know, where our office is not anywhere near, you know, like a war zone type of place. I mean, I I think we looked too, there was one, you know, Orange County has parts along the coast, Newport Beach. I think there was somewhere along the coast, there was an opportunity zone in Orange County, which makes, you know, no sense to you and me because (laughs) properties are worth millions of dollars. It's the rough part of Orange County. It's like the, uh, (laughs) like the clearance rack at Saks Fifth Avenue. You can find Matt rapping there on the weekends. Yeah, (laughs) there you go. For for someone who wants to find opportunity zones, can you give us the resource where you can look them up? Yes. Yeah. It's actually... Google. The, yeah, yeah. Actually, the <laughs> IRS website. So if you go on mm-hmm. the IRS website and search Opportunity Zone, there's a link that they update pretty frequently. Um, I think that you can run it by state, by city, by zip code to get the most current listing of, of where those are. Um, and I think for those people who buy the advanced tax book from Bigger Pockets, there we have an additional chapter specifically on Opportunity Zone that has that information as well. Oh, but cool. yeah, IRS website is the best place to get that. Even though you don't, as we mentioned, we don't need an intermediary like a 1031 exchange, but like a lot of things in the tax, this is not a do-it-yourself thing. So make sure you talk to your advisors ahead of time because there are numerous rules you have to follow to make sure you're, you know, getting all the benefits you're hoping to get. And one of those is you have to actually fix the property up a certain degree, right? Like it has to be like either a development job or like a massive rehab, right? Yeah. Massive rehab. So good for, you know, advanced burr strategies where you're doing quite a bit to the property. Here's what I love. I mean, here's I just, I just think it's fascinating. We make fun of the government a lot for being stupid, right? America, like we just love uh-huh. to tease the government for being dumb and red tape. But here's why this is such a genius plan. Whoever came up with the idea, I don't even know who it was, was like, we've got all these areas that we want to develop. Some of them are really bad. Some are just areas we want, we want to see developed. We could go spend a lot of money doing it, or we could just make real estate investors do it for us. And we could make people, we can make real estate investors do it for us. And we can use all the money from the economy that they were going to pay us in taxes 
to dump in. I mean, it was just like a genius move to like, you have to fix the property up. So now we're improving these areas. You have to, you know, add or, or build, which now we're adding, you know, more like housing for Americans and stuff. And we're going to use Americans money to do it. It's like, I, I don't know. It's just a good. I agree 100%. It, it, because the government is terrible at everything they do. Yeah. When you're yeah. like, the government's going to come in and they're going to fix this thing. You face yeah. palm, right? Yep. But real estate investors who have experience <laughs> doing this that are good at it, we're like, yeah. let's get you to do it for us. And yeah. that's what and that's I love about the, the idea. That's the truth about the tax code in general, right? And Amanda, you brought this up to me like years ago. It's like the tax code exists because the government wants to incentivize certain actions. Mm-hmm. That's why we have taxes and why we have, uh, you know, they offset taxes in some way and incentivize you another. Mm-hmm. The government doesn't do this stuff arbitrarily. Right. Like they're not just randomly giving us 1031 exchanges and cost segregation studies and all that because like somebody just felt good one day to do it. Everything in there generally, I'm sure there's some was just backhanded stuff, but like, or backroom deals, but like a lot of it's, they want us to do stuff. Yeah. So when we play within their rules, they reward us right. and they like real estate investors. Yeah. And uh, I just want to mention real quick, because one of the biggest benefits that came out as part of tax reform is the what's considered the flow through entity tax break, uh, which really just means that, you know, if you have certain types of income, that the first 20% of that profit could be completely tax free. Uh, so meaning, you know, if, if let's say David uh, it, with his uh, brokerage business made $100,000, uh, potentially under the new uh, tax reform, 20,000 of that could would be taxed at zero rates, right? So, so he never has to pay taxes on that at all. And, you know, we mentioned previously that tax reform was so beneficial to real estate investors because this 20% tax break applies to uh, many types of investment income. So a lot of rental income potentially could be eligible for 20% tax-free treatment. We have clients who are brokers, you know, realtors that had a really great tax year because of this tax break where, you know, part of their commission was not taxed at all. Um, and also people who are flipping and doing wholesaling, right? First 20% could be at zero tax. So definitely, um, you know, government incentivizing us to to do more real estate, do more business um, and, you know, getting the, the, reaping the benefits of that as a result. Very cool. Very cool. All right. Well, we got to move on to the next segment of the show. And this is what we call the fire, fire round. round. It's time for the fire round. Uh, this is part of the show where we take questions direct out of the Bigger Pockets forums. And of course, today they're kind of tax related questions and we're going to fire them at you. Of course, I will say everyone's unique you know, position is unique and you guys are going to have to make some assumptions here based on uh, almost no information whatsoever. But <laughs> do your best. Here we go. Number one, Jason from Wichita, Kansas said, as a house, as a house flipper, what is the best entity or structure to use from a tax perspective? Generally, uh, for Flippers, um, you know, obviously I'm going to make an assumption that he's the only, only owner of the business, but generally speaking, we usually look at using as corporations for the flipping business. Mm-hmm. Um, they're you know, flexible. They're strategic in terms of minimizing self-employment taxes. They're, there's easy ways to get money in and out. Um, so that, that generally works the best, uh, but they're obviously if he's got other partners or things like that, there's, a, there's other considerations for sure. Yeah, I think as an example, uh, you know, very high level example of someone who's flipping and making $100,000 of flip profit, operating as an S corp could save upwards of six $7,000 in self-employment taxes per year. Right. Mm. Of course, you know, the, the final result will be different depending on what else you have going on, but that's kind of a general guideline. Yeah, perfect. 
All right. Number two. Next question from Chris G. Home office question. I have a W-2 job and also have multiple rental properties, but I do not qualify for real estate professional status. Can I still claim my home office at my home office as a deduction? Yeah, a person can still claim the home office deduction against their rental properties, you know, under the assumption they're using it for for the rental property business, depending on where their numbers fall there. The deduction itself may be limited or, you know, um, there's rules in place for there. But yeah, you can you can still take it. It's not doesn't preclude you from taking just because you're not a real estate professional or just because you have a W-2 job on the side. Awesome. All right. Number three, Ronald from Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I inherited a home from a parent who passed away. How do capital gains taxes work when you're inheriting a longtime family home? A good question. So typically when someone passes away, they get what's called a basis step up. So let's say parents bought the home for $3,000 back in the day. When they pass away, it's worth 100000 And we're going to turn around and sell it for $100,000. There's actually no taxes, no capital gains tax because we inherit the property at the fair market value on the date that parent passed away. Mm, there you go. Which is also ties Beautiful. into the 1031 thing, which is why if you if you swap till you drop, that's why that's why Matt said that. You just see it rolls off the it tongue. Does, it does. You just keep <laughs> 1031 exchanging until you die. That massive tax bill you would have had at the end of your life, 50 years down after doing this 20 times, your kids just it just wipes it out, right? Like I mean, essentially. Right. Let's hope that yeah. keeps for the next 50 years and I don't burden Rosie and Wilder with a <laughs> hundred million dollar tax bill. All right. Next. Last question from Alex Cordero in New Jersey. Is my Bigger Pockets Pro membership tax deductible because it's business related? Absolutely. No. That's the short answer. <laughs> okay. Good. Yeah. No, it's, it's it's helping you, you know, ordinary necessary business expense to expand your business and, you know, mm-hmm. learn new things, obviously. And-, and did you use the words ordinary and necessary because that's the case law? That's the the test that the courts will use? Yeah, because I'm a CPA. It just, <laughs> it just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? And right, when we say right. ordinary necessary business, we don't mean a legal entity, right? We just mean your business as a real estate investor. Mm, mm, perfect. Yeah, that's that's how the IRS is going to look at, will we let you deduct it? Is it ordinary and necessary? You can't go buy a ferret and say, well, this ferret <laughs> is here to keep me company because if I'm in a better mood, I'll, I'll do better on my sales calls. That's a very unordinary. Sounds like you've read court cases in the past. (laughs) As a police officer, I would always be studying case law with how they determine like when, when force use was good or not. So I would never want your job, but I, and I know just enough about it to know I would never want to do it. All right. Well, good answers to the fire. And we could have done like 50 of those. Let's go to famous four. Famous four questions. Number one from each of you. What is your favorite real estate related book? Um, besides your own, of gosh, course. I know. I would say my own. I would say Brandon's. And besides Rich, Rich Dad, I, Poor Dad. Besides you know. Rich Dad, besides Brandon's, yeah. I think everybody says those. <laughs> I'm going to go today. I'm going to go with David Green's book, uh, oh, The wow. Burr. Um, I love it. You know, like I said, we have clients who are flipping and I'm always trying to convince them to do the Burr strategy. And that's a good resource that I often refer people to. It has really great content. And I especially love the piece about taxes, that chapter where you talk about the tax benefits of it. So yeah, that's what I'm going to say. Well, thank you, Amanda. You have no idea how nervous I was that I included a tax piece in my book, but I'm not a tax <laughs> professional. I feel really good now that it's been given a seal of approval from the tax book. <laughs> what about you, Matt? Anything uh, you want to add? Yeah, I want to say mine is a book by Steve Burgess. It's called The Complete Guide to Buying and Selling Apartment Buildings. Love I read it. it a long time ago, but 
Uh, the cool thing about that for me was that he talks about how you can, you know, do force appreciation in apartment buildings. But being a numbers guy, he's got tons of spreadsheets in there. He can kind of show you how you're, you can build your wealth very, you know, scale it up by as you buy, buy and sell more and more of these appreciated apartment buildings. So that was, that was a cool book. Yeah, I totally agree. I love that book. It's fantastic. Brandon's read every single book. Have you just noticed (laughs) that? Every time they say this book is, oh yeah, that was great. I know there's a lot of times I'm like, I haven't read that one. I think you need to make like a video, the Ty Lopez style where he's like, Hey, I'm here in my garage with my Lamborghini (laughs) and I got 2000 books on my wall. You should make one of those videos. Yeah. Here's my, for all the books. My garage. Yeah. Doesn't he, doesn't he just sit on the beach all day long and read books? That's all I do. That's all I do anymore. Knowledge. Here's the three Knowledge. things you can do. Yeah, that's that funny. You should do it with like your Rav Four or whatever it is that you're driving around. My Tesla. Uh, Tesla. Yeah. Tesla. Oh, you have a Tesla now. Yeah, you yeah, are. I have status. I stand correct. Can, can I wrap the intro for it? You can. Of course you could. Oh, of course. This you is could. all coming together. This is all. Amanda <laughs> can run the books. Okay, let's get back on track here. What is your favorite business book? Uh, business book. I really like one. Uh, it's uh, Freakonomics by mm-hmm. Steve Levin, I think is the last name. Um, I've not read that one. You've not Thank read that one? Much. Oh I'm my gosh. I, I, I see it all the time. It. <laughs> I know I should. It's an old watched, book. It's been around yeah. for many years, but I love it. It's about, you know, uh, the numbers behind economics that uh, show, it, they talk about how that impacts consumer behavior. You know, why do we do the things we do? Why do we buy what we buy? Um, I just find that fascinating. And right. I, I'd say my favorite one, business book is a book called pricing on purpose by Ronald Baker. So it's, um, you know, obviously for being in a professional services firm, uh, but it's, it's written for all kinds of business, but it talks about how, you know, a lot of professional services will used to bill by the hour, but it kind of teaches you about what is the value you're bringing to the mm-hmm. table. And, you know, this is in economics, you should be charging for the value you're bringing, not just some hours you're spending, yeah. hourly rate that, you know, so it's a way, you know, it kind of changed the way we did our, we ran our business and it's helped our business significantly. And, uh, and it, like I said, it's, it can, it can apply to all kinds of business, not just professional services. I feel like in general, I think the world's moving that direction more as more things go virtual. We're moving away from if you're here for this long, you get paid this much to if you are this productive or you accomplish this many things, you can get paid, which is great if you're a go-getter because the better you are at what you do, the more income you earn. It's terrible if you're a slug that just shows up and thinks you should get paid. So I'm all on board for for seeing more of that. Yeah, I've seen you already, so I should get paid more and get more vacation time because I've been here longer, even though I sit around all day doing nothing. You know, what's really funny is Brandon's sitting in a black chair wearing a black shirt talking, and it looks like a (laughs) floating head in front of a microphone talking about having seniority. (laughs) <laughs> that's exactly what you look like. Like I didn't even br- bother to bring my body to work today. Uh, I don't know. That's, that's, that. <laughs> that's exactly it. <laughs> show my arms a little bit. I was to go. Yeah, oh, that's can't better. Yeah. There we go. Oh, that's, some, that's not better. I, yeah, I, got my, not better. Yes. I got my white guns now. Come on. <laughs> I was getting tripped out earlier this too not, by the floating head. This is not what head. I signed up for. Yeah, that's, yeah, the floating head. You guys got to watch this on YouTube if you're listening to this in the car to see what it looks like with Brandon yeah. sitting there. It's very funny. <laughs> All right. As far as the things you guys are into that are not saving people money in taxes, what are some of your hobbies? I'll let Matt go first. (laughs) Other than freestyle rapping (laughs) on eight mile. (laughs) Uh, I I, I enjoy uh, coaching baseball or coaching my son in baseball. And I also love playing softball still. So it's kind of Baseball is my sport and I try and do as much as I can mm. in it. Matt seems like that guy that can calculate like what the best move should be at any given rate. He's like, okay, this kid is batting 245 against curveballs, but 330 against fastballs. He can do all these calculations <laughs> in his head and decide if it's going to be hit and run or 
Is that you, Matt? Mm-hmm. You, you joke, but there's people, there's people out there in Little League doing that. Oh, gosh, so. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, that we're doing a drafting for the Little League team. So Matt's currently working on a bunch of Excel spreadsheets with all the different stats. And that's oh. not a joke. Yeah, they, they they make you come out to there's an evaluation uh-huh. day where you got spreadsheets and clipboards and you're out there for eight hours like trying to write down how well these eight to ten year olds are playing <laughs> baseball here. That's funny. <laughs> how about you, Amanda? Uh, I'm fairly boring. Um, my hobbies are eating and sleeping. Uh, and Ooh, that's the truth. <laughs> um, but because I favorite love food, favorite food, all kinds of Asian food. Don't really have uh-huh. a favorite one. But because I love eating so much, I, I do enjoy cooking. Mm, all right. Do you watch the Food Channel, the Food Network? Food Channel? Uh, oh, I no, I try not to because yeah. if I do, when I have time to watch TV, it's usually late night, mm-hmm. and that just leads mm-hmm. to me going into the kitchen or the pantry, and that's not that's good. exactly. Yeah, that's exactly what it does. That's the only channel we watch in our house ever. It's always at night when we're going to bed, like getting ready for bed, and I'm like, oh, those cookies look amazing. Oh yeah, they made that. Yeah, they made that fondue out of Girl Scout cookies or whatever, and then I got to go try it, and it's rough. <laughs> All right, last question from me. What do you think sets apart successful real estate investors from all those who give up, fail, or never get started? Mm. Uh, I think that's such an easy one for me. I think it's just about taking action. You know, I think for the the thing I see the most with, you know, clients and friends is just not doing it. Analysis paralysis just taking too long. So I think even for Matt and I, um, you know, the first purchase we made, it was super scary. I thought about jumping out of the window before signing on the purchase agreement, Um, but just do it. That's what I would say. Yeah, I think kind of along those lines, uh, to me, it's, we talked about this earlier, is kind of playing to your strengths, right? So I've seen enough where people, I think the successful investors are somebody who can take action, but who is also detailed and organized. And again, that doesn't have to be the same person, but if you're not both of those things, and a lot of people aren't, obviously, then you need to get the right people to help you uh, on your team that can play one of those roles. Because I've seen a lot of times where a lot of real estate investors go into deals and they're, they're really good at taking action, but you know, they get this big deal and they're trying to raise investor money and they can't, you know, can't produce a financial statement for an investor. And it's like, I just blows my mind, you know, and you know, so that's like, I think you need to, you know, you need to be able to take action, but you also need to have somebody on your team that's detailed and organized to kind of, you know, keep you in there, keep you in the right spots and and you guys can push and pull each other along the way. So are you saying that you only get, one shot. Do not miss your chance to blow. <laughs> this opportunity, opportunity comes once in a lifetime. <laughs> yeah, you gotta something like that. Yeah. All right. Let's. Uh, <laughs> I was thinking more like bust a move. But All yeah. right. Okay. There we go. <laughs> All right, David Green. This has been great, guys. Really appreciate it. You were very fun. Yes, you're also very smart people, and that's the best guys to get on. So everybody, go get these books, check them out. Make sure that you're not leaving money on the table with your investing. And seriously, understand that when you inspect what you expect, when you actually look at your books and look at your numbers, your mind will recognize patterns with where you should be finding, like finding ways to improve your business and what you should be focusing on. Guys, for people who want to find out more about you, where can they? Uh, our website, I think, is the best place. We have lots of, uh, you know, free information on and also the latest on taxes and, and tax law and strategies. Uh, it's www.keystonecpa.com. All righty. All right. Check it out. And again, I, I think you guys are great. That's why I work with you year after year after year, because you save me a whole lot more money than it costs me. So thank you guys. And uh, with that, we got to get out of here. So thank you guys. Thank, thank you. you. Appreciate it. All right, guys. All right, Go ahead. Brandon, do you have something? 
Oh, I was just going to say before we get out of here, I did want to hit our uh, pro member spotlight this week. Is that cool? Can I do yeah, that? Let's do it. This week's pro member spotlight, Lee Gerzuski. I probably said that name incorrectly from Bismarck, North Dakota. Recently did a burr deal on a triplex, put $170,000 into it. Once he refinances, he'll be able to pull $180,000 out, which means he's actually like getting more out than he put into it, which is awesome. And it will still cash flow like 300 bucks a month. And here's a great thing about this deal. Lee got it off market from someone he knew at the gym. Like he never would have known that if he didn't tell people he was a real estate investor. So go out there and do that. So go online, everybody here and go put your deals into your bigger pockets profile. Let other people know that you're doing stuff. And if you're a bigger pockets pro member and you want to shout out here on the podcast, just email us at podcast at biggerpockets.com. Put the word pro deal in the subject line and we might be singing your praises next week all right that's all i got so david green that's it you ready to take us out yeah you know i was thinking when you were talking about tell everybody you're an investor that's such a big piece of finding off-market deals uh what i would do is i'd go to brandon's instagram i'd see what he posts and i'd either repost (laughs) it or i'd make similar things so everyone sees like yeah i'm into real estate investing like brandon Mm. does that's the easiest way thanks yeah, he is. <laughs> he's Beardy Brandon. I'm David Green, 24. Oh, and you also made a very nice post for me on my birthday, man. I just want to tell you that. I appreciate that. This is very nice You're of welcome. you to do. You're very good at being nice. <laughs> <laughs> this is David Green for Brandon, the floating head turner, signing off. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. There's a reason small multifamily investing is so popular in the BiggerPockets community. With just a 3.5% down payment, you can own up to four different units. Think about it. If you house hack and live in one of the units, you still have three different groups of tenants helping you pay down your mortgage every month, four kitchens and bathrooms you could renovate to increase your property value, four different Airbnbs, medium-term rentals, or other rental strategies that you can try in one property, all in just one transaction. Of course, the question is, where do you find a small multifamily property that you can actually afford? Which market and which deals are best for you? Once you close, how do you manage it, optimize it, keep scaling, and living your life without being tied down to four leaky toilets or four fussy tenants? All great questions, my friends. All to be answered in the upcoming Small Multifamily Bootcamp with Chris Lopez and Leka Devatha. So if you're serious about growing your portfolio with this highly efficient strategy, head to biggerpockets.com slash four, F-O-U-R. Today, and join us in the Small Multifamily Bootcamp. See you there. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.